Hello, Burlington, and welcome to Net Zero Energy. I'm Jennifer Green, Director of Sustainability for the City of Burlington, where our goal is to reduce and eventually eliminate fossil fuel usage. In this podcast series, we share ways we can all reduce our energy usage for heating, transportation, and really anything else we plug in. Today, I'm so pleased to be here with Dr. Amy Seidel. Amy is a professor at UVM, an ecologist, a climate scientist, and the author of two books on climate change and adaptation and resilience. Is that right, Amy? That's correct, yeah. So can you tell us, you know, I know you from the classroom, and I know about your work with students on collecting data. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about your, maybe your what you've written most recently and what inspired you to write that book? Yeah. Well, thank you. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, yeah, my background is in ecology and in evolutionary biology, too. And so I came to the phenomenon of climate change wondering how the non-human world was going to be affected by a warming atmosphere, changing weather, more chaos in terms of weather events, and the overall signals of increasing temperature and its effect on, on all kinds of non-human life. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about that in an alpine population out in in Colorado uh, and realized that I didn't need to go to Colorado. (laughs) I didn't need to go to these high-flung, high-elevation alpine environments to see the effect of climate change in a very everyday setting. Um, The changing nature of our migrant songbird population is so apparent to us now, you know. Male cardinals sing six weeks earlier than they did 40 years ago because the arrival of spring is that much earlier. And I found these everyday backyard occasions and instances of the phenomenon illustrated to be so powerful and so um, compelling that I decided to write a book not about the work I had done, you know, in a place distant from here, but in a place where Everybody could look around them, their favorite ponds, their favorite walks, their, the lake itself, and see these effects. I'm so glad you're talking about this because we talk about strategic electrification. We talk about the importance of, sort of buying energy local, but we sometimes forget why. And we don't often talk about sort of the why at home and the importance of playing a role in ensuring that we have as little impact as we possibly can on the natural world. So that's really where you're coming from, it sounds like. Yeah, I I really appreciate that because I've been thinking a lot with my colleagues, actually, Christian Brevik in particular, about this local responsibility. You know, these phenomenon, this phenomenon in particular of climate change is a global phenomenon. It's additive because of so many things we could point to, our transportation sector, the fact that we in an industrial state have relied so entirely on cheap, efficient fossil fuels. And their use happens locally, right? Um, But they add up to this global phenomenon. So how do we find our obligation where we live, not only to the mitigation of their use and the transition that you all are so dedicated to, but to the stewardship of the landscape, and I think this is really critical, that is both um, part of the stewardship that we have a responsibility to, 
and the very places that we will be looking to to mitigate the effects of climate change. And I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity to understand how, for instance, the forests of New England in Maine and Vermont and New Hampshire are simultaneously these places for songbird and a place of incredible carbon sequestration as a mitigating strategy. So when we realize that, I think it deepens our stewardship. It deepens our relationship to the world that we completely rely on, that we exist within, that we have relationship to, and paradoxically is ensuring our well-being because of what those ecosystems do. It's it's quite profound when you think about it. Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, I've often thought in, in Burlington, in a way, we're a step ahead because we see a beautiful natural environment all around us. You know, I look out, I can walk down the road to the lake, I can get in the lake, <laughs> I can swim with fish, which is one of my, you know, I love swimming in the lake. I love looking down, you know, 15 feet below, if there's a fish beneath me and I get out of the lake and the geese are migrating above me and sort of literally and figuratively being a part of all that um, makes me feel sort of more connected to the work we have to do. Climate change is not only a phenomenon that's very challenging of the human race, but it's an outcome of the way we think about ourselves in this world. Um, we know that climate change is a result of extraction and of seeing um, fossil fuels, even with these consequences, as ours to have. And so there's some really interesting thinking there about how we do use resources and how we are stewards of the more than human, people might say, or the non-human world. And I think if it starts early on that we develop these relationships, then our thinking about climate change is different than perhaps it is if we don't. So I'm just thinking, for instance, when, when I work with my students um, at the University of Vermont, and we go out and do, we're doing a bunch of, of restoration work right now, for instance, we see the opportunity to, you know, to be in landscapes where we can be mutualistic with this world and not extractive, where we can actually be the agents who come in and build habitat for birds and plants and animals and songbirds and migrating monarchs, right? And when you put people in a position of mutualism with the non-human world, you have a very different relationship there. All of a sudden, there's a plus-plus everywhere you look, right? How do we imbue our relationship with an ethos that is thinking about mutualism and relationship? And I know that might seem a little bit um, conceptual, but a lot of people, a lot of young people, a lot of teachers are spending forced Fridays with their students doing exactly that in Burlington, in school systems around Chittenden County. Yeah, and maybe we can uh, shout out to the Vermont Energy Education Project, because I know Absolutely. VEEP is an important partner in, in working with kids as we not only think about climate change, but the energy that we use or don't and how it, it impacts us. Amy, can I ask you about Finding Higher Ground, which mm. is the, you have two books out. You have Early Spring, which I'm familiar with, and I, I do want to hear more about that. I don't know a lot about Finding Higher Ground and your work on adaptation. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So Finding Higher Ground is a book that I'll tell you was a little bit um, transgressive when it first came out because people thought 
if we start to talk about adaptation, then we will lose our momentum around mitigation. And I think people like Paul Hawken and his drawdown work has really helped move the conversation to how do we find co-benefits between mitigation and adaptation? How do we find solutions that are both mitigating, meaning they're decarbonizing our atmosphere, they are helping us transition to clean energy, and they're simultaneously um, helping us prepare for greater warming that's already built into the system. So I look at agricultural lands right now, and we can look everywhere from the intervale right here in town to so many different regenerative farmers in the area that are um, using best soil practices to be uptaking of carbon because they're planting no-till, etc., but they're also soils that can absorb water. So how we deal with these um, inconsistent, somewhat erratic, but a signal of increasing precipitation over time is an adaptation. It's, a, it's an adaptation question. And the way we do that is we look for those multi-solving co-benefit strategies like preserving prime agricultural soil that can take up water or planting crops like rice that loves to be wet or um, thinking through ways to um, have our nature-based solutions be both taking up of carbon and also creating more resilience in those ecosystems. And that's, that's a very exciting place to be in when you can both adapt and mitigate simultaneously. And that's really what the book is about. I read early spring when it first came out. That was a little bit ago. But I think, you know, you referenced the cardinal and the male cardinal singing six weeks earlier than in years past. What other tidbits do you yeah, include in that things, book? Things that people would see, um, especially as the spring came on, you know, in North America, the arrival of spring is probably our strongest signal that is at that sort of gross level, hemispheric level, um, that spring does arrive earlier and earlier as a signal for us. And so early flowering plants like the lilac, for instance. Um, the lilac is so interesting because the, the lilac is a species that can be vegetatively reproduced. And so we've actually have experiments across this country that the USDA has been behind where they've planted the same clone. So these are genetically identical lilac bushes all across the country. And so their flowering is not based on differences in genetics because the genetics are the same. The flowering differences are really based on weather and climate. And what we know is that the lilac used to bloom more like in May around here. I know Shelburne Farms has a big lilac festival, Shelburne Inn, but the lilacs bloom early and earlier. Um, we see this in pollinators too, arriving earlier or breaking their diapause earlier. Uh, some of our overwintering butterflies like the morning cloak arriving earlier. And what's so interesting about this, I find, is that um, in some cases, absolutely, we're seeing both a plastic response, that's sort of an evolutionary term to say that animals have the ability to flex around these earlier temperatures and earlier phenologies or seasonality, and sometimes they don't, right? And so that's where natural selection will be acting, and if there's enough variation in the genome of those organisms, then indeed they will adapt, genetically adapt to this new, this new condition. If they don't, then they will be hard-pressed to remain in this location. In time, for instance, um, it's my understanding that the Carolina wren won't be here, won't be in Massachusetts, even though it's the state bird of Massachusetts, because Massachusetts will simply be too warm. 
I feel when I talk to young people, they get excited. They get excited because they see they live in a community where things are happening. It makes them feel empowered to know that, you know, where our electricity comes from and our active work on the part of city government and all our partners to transition mm-hmm. away from fossil fuels. We are certainly not turning a blind eye. No, I, I, that's that's so important to be a model for young people that we are not asleep at the wheel. You know, that those of us who are older and have positions of power and privilege are taking this very seriously on behalf of our, our own families, on, on behalf of the generations of the future in which they are very much a part. And what I find in my 18 to, you know, 22-year-old students at UVM is that when they feel they have agency, when they can be efficacious, when they can find that local place to put their energy and they see action on behalf of whether it's a school, working with a school or working with a nonprofit or helping to elect an official who is wants to act on climate – that that assuages their eco-anxiety, right? Their eco-anxiety is the fear that nothing's going to happen. There's so many places and spaces that a young person can plug into to be working on climate change, mitigation, and adaptation that doesn't have to be, quote-unquote, related to sustainability per se. Right. You don't have to be putting solar panels on a roof, although that's important too, or weatherizing a building. It can be getting a degree in public health, for example. Absolutely. And and even the arts. You know, in fact, you know, just even going to Art Hop last week here in Burlington, I saw so much environmental art. I saw so many opportunities for artists to communicate where we are. That's, if I may, I'll just take that moment to say, you know, I've written two books that are really creative nonfiction, a way to communicate the science that I've been trained in for audiences that are wide-ranging. You know, one of the the, the people my, my students love to read with me is a woman named um, Leah Penniman, who uh, has this amazing project in upstate New York, and she talks about falling in love with the solution. You know, how do you find things you already love to do? You love to make music. You love to cook. You love to be with children. You love to bicycle. You know, what What are you passionate about? And marry that to a mission that addresses climate change. Find what you love, and the climate change work will fold into that. Exactly. Amy, I want to thank you so much for being here. <laughs> and we're really looking forward to your next book and um, staying in touch as we work together in Burlington. Thank you, Jen. I love working with you. Oh, thank you. Ditto. Thank you again for listening to Net Zero Energy. If you have any questions about this podcast or what BED offers regarding incentives, rebates, or technological support, look for us at burlingtonelectric.com or call us at 802-865-7300. You can also follow us on Facebook. We're always here to help and look forward to engaging with you on our mutual path to net zero energy. Thank you.